All right, we're practicing. We'll get used to this. Lift up your hearts. All right. You guys are learning. That's good. Um, there are things, there are elements that we are placing very um, clearly within our order of service in order to teach us certain things. And so we begin with um, a, a greeting that the church has echoed down through the ages. Psalm 95, by the way, a call to worship that this year you're going to hear frequently has been used as a call to worship for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, sometimes you, you might think like, wow, that call to worship ends kind of dark. Like, what is with that? You know, they will not enter my rest. And then like cue the, you know, the music. You're like, what is with that? Why do we do, why do we pick that psalm? Well, Psalm 95 is a, is a wonderful psalm. We'll, we'll actually, I think we're going to actually preach through that psalm. Um, but, but just so you know, why, do we, why are we going to use that? Well, it begins with reminding us of who God is and his faithfulness and um, his faithfulness to his promises. And then the key to Psalm 95 is this, do not harden your hearts. Right? Do not harden your hearts. That's the key. So what, we want you to hear that over and over again in this um, in this year, in fact, the church has been reciting Psalm 95 as a call to worship. Um, there are some streams of Christianity, some Christians, um, some Christian, especially Christians in Africa, that wake up every morning and by heart, by memory, recite Psalm 95, and that's what they do. That's the first thing they do when their feet hit the ground. Remember, do not harden your heart today, um, but rather open your ears, open your heart to what God has to say. So that's why we're using that as our call to worship. It's biblical, it's historical, um, and it reminds us of something very good as we enter into worship together to not harden our hearts, um, but rather to lift up our hearts, to open our ears to what God has to say. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. We are entering into book four of the Psalms in Psalm 90. There's book four of the Psalms. Um, book four of the Psalms here, it, it's, we, we are coming out of this very dark place. We read Psalm 88 and then looked at and preached through Psalm 89, which is a very, very dark and difficult time in the history of Israel. Um, they're at the bottom of the pit, but as Psalm 89 looks up, there is this glimmer, this bright beaming glimmer of hope in who God is, and it reminds us that no matter how dark the days get, that God is still faithful, and that we look to him. And Psalm 90 um, reminds the people of Israel, the people of Israel, this, this book, the book of Psalms, or collection of Psalms, are, were collected, were edited, and put in this order for a people in exile and coming out of exile. And so they have known very dark days, and the promises of God seem to have fallen flat. And so this is their worship book. Um, this is what encourages them. And so Psalm 90, after Psalm 89, where the book, uh, book four, um, 3 closes and book 4 opens up, you see that here is a, a prayer, a prayer of Moses. Um, Moses is the rescuer of Israel. Moses is a type of Messiah. He's the one who, has, who, who led Israel out of Egypt. He's the one that points to Jesus. And so here, 
um, Moses, in this, in this particular psalm, reminds us that God himself is Israel's dwelling place. In fact, there's a, a shift in book four. There is a shift because book, books one and two especially focus on David and the Davidic kingdom. Book four, there is this shift to where Yahweh, God himself, is the king of Israel. What happens as the people of Israel go into exile, um, as they have sinned and were, um, were taken out of the land of promise, it is exile in that time that produces an even greater faith in the people of Israel. It is an even greater faith than the promise um, that was promised to David, that there would be a Davidic king, for David has come and gone. And now what Israel knows is that there is one who is even greater than David. And somehow God is going to fulfill this promise that someone in the line of David would be the rescuer and would rescue them, not temporarily, but forever. So an even greater faith. In um, Psalms 90 and 91 of this book function as an introduction to this section of the book of Psalms. 92 through 100, you have nine Psalms of Yahweh, God, as king. In, Psalm, in Psalms 101 to 103, you have three Psalms of, of David affirming the Davidic line, the promise of God that there would be a king out of the line of David. And, and then you have this first um, in Psalm 104, 105, and 106, this triad of hallelujahs. It's, um, it's um, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in book five, which is all about hallelujah. Um, this magnificent, triumphant end, um, ending of this beautiful symphony that we call the Psalms in five movements. Um, throughout this book, you're going to see that, that there is this creation theme. It shouldn't surprise you. Since Moses is the one who writes the Pentateuch, who writes the, the creation. These are the generations of creation. He writes the creation story. Um, Twelve psalms have creation themes. Um, eight psalms have mosaic covenant themes. Only one psalm, 101, lacks both of those. Um, creation and covenant are two themes that reassure Israel, that reassure the people of God, that reassure us of God's character, and they lead to comfort. Book four is a book of comfort. It's a book of comfort. As book three was this book of despair and darkness and, and God's judgment on sin, book four now is a book of comfort. It's a book of, of maturity. We're going to see this in this psalm. If you really want to look at how life is and look with a realistic lens um, at the world, Psalm 90 is your psalm. Psalm 90 is um, your psalm. You see, what, what we see in this psalm is that um, it is a lament psalm, but yet it is a lament psalm that is a, a psalm of great comfort. Um, it's, a, it's a lament psalm, and the psalmist is fully trusting in God, even when he doesn't have all of the answers, even when he understands that life is frail, that life is short. In many ways, life is disappointing, but yet our hope and our comfort and our joy is all in Christ. 
is all in the promise of God. And in that, we are satisfied. We are happy. We do have joy. The crisis of the collection of the Psalms are going to be resolved, and they point to the jubilant celebration in the final Psalms of this entire collection. And we'll see, we see that in book four. And so we have Psalm 90. Psalm 90, and at the center of this psalm, verse 12, um, there's, there's actually a, a center um, that spans uh, a large portions, portion, verses 7 through 11, and then verse 12 are two separate sections that form the center of this psalm. But the way that we can remember this psalm is simply by verse 12, teach us to number our days. Hebrews 12 picks up on this theme of, 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 of teach us to number our days. Oftentimes we think simply about this, that, that life is short, um, but that's not the full meaning of this. It has more to do with, yes, life is short, but we are to live out our days as children of God in obedience. Um, here in this psalm, as we read through it, you'll see that verses 3, verse 3 and 5 and 6 and verse 10 pick up on Psalm 89 and verse 47 that talks about the frailty of man. The psalmist says in, in Psalm 89, remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. Uh, that vanity is not a, a call of despair, um, but rather it's just saying life is frail. Life is very short. Psalm 90 here is um, the heart, the very heart of the Psalms. Um, it is this mosaic psalm is a psalm that also reflects Exodus 32. So there is, a, there is a strong parallel between this psalm and Exodus 32. So Exodus 32 is what God called the children of Israel out of Egypt and they made their way out of Egypt. Miraculously, all the plagues and the, the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, and they get out into the wilderness and God's about to give them instructions about how they are to live. And what does Israel do? They turn and they worship another god, a golden calf. And so this angers God. And God's about to destroy Israel. And so what does Moses do in Exodus 32? Well, he, he is this Messiah figure. He, he says, take me. Put it on me. He intercedes for Israel. And in shorthand, God says, that's not possible, Moses. And he promises one in which it will be possible. And he relents of his anger. And is the prayer of Moses that saves the people of God. And so we see here, in the fold of the Psalms, right in the middle, Moses again appearing pointing towards the coming of Jesus, the great Messiah, the one and only. And what is he doing? In lament, he is interceding for the people of God. Let's read the psalm. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. 
Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust. And say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years are in your sight, but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. For the years of our life are 70. Or if by reason of strength, 80. But their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. What we have is a mature perspective on life. And we're going to see um, the structure of um, Psalm 90 um, in the following. So here's your, your outline uh, for today. And I don't know if you can see that. It doesn't show up very well on here. But um, the first and last, they're parallels. Everlasting God, everlasting God, establish the work of our hands. Return to dust, that's second. Return to dust, we see transient man. And then return, O Lord, and give us joy. And then in the middle, we have these two parallels. Consumed and terrified by God's wrath, teach us a heart of, of wisdom. That's how, the, that's how this, this psalm goes together. The whole purpose of these sections is that we might see life as it really is and that we too might learn to number our days and have a heart of wisdom. You say, what's the point of this psalm? Well, the point of this psalm is that through worship that we might gain a perspective on life, that we might order our actions um, of our Monday through Saturday in a way that reflects who God is and how he has created us, that we would have a heart of wisdom. So let's look at this first part as Moses speaks of an everlasting God. 
He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And he speaks of creation. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth or the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So this section opens up and it declares Moses as a man of God. This is used meant as a cue to have us think back of where in Scripture do we see this. We see this in that section um, of Exodus. We see it again in the sermons uh, of Moses in Deuteronomy 33, verse 1. Moses here proclaims that God was Israel's eternal dwelling place. That's a theme in Moses' sermons to that second generation of Israelites going into the promised land in Deuteronomy in his sermons. And here he contrasts um, man's frailty with God's eternity. That next section, he's going to talk about the fact that man is frail, but God is eternal. And he says that God's, God is the dwelling place of what? All generations. Um, when you see this idea of generation upon generation in Scripture, and especially um, in the Psalms, we are reminded um, that God has a covenant program in Scripture. There is a covenant community and a covenant family. And so the intention of the gospel is that the gospel is to go to all generations that it is effective. If God's people are worshiping as we should, then the next generation should worship as they should. That's the way the gospel works. And he says here that you have been faithful, God. You have always been the dwelling place in all generations. In fact, before the generations, you are that safe place. However, in this second section, he reminds us, that we are transient, that we return to dust, return, return man to dust, and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night. Here, Moses is reminding us of how God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, and how God spoke to Adam and Genesis 2, 17, and he said to him that from, you may eat from every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That man was going to return to dust because of his sin. In Genesis 3, 19, it says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and dust you shall return. We are reminded that God is the everlasting God, but man is transient. From dust he was created. From dust he will return. Moses then speaks of the thousand years. In the pre-flood narrative, men and women would live a long time. Um, it's interesting um, that Methuselah lived 969 years prior to the flood. And Moses um, ties this section together with several references to years and time. He says years and yesterday, a watch in the night. Um, he talks about morning um, and 
evening. And here we see that man's years, even though they might be 70 or 80 or 969, move by so quickly, are here and are gone. And it is, he uses this idea of flood imagery. Notice verse 5, you sweep them away with a flood like they are a dream and they're gone. Like grass in the heat of the day. You water your yard in the morning with that expensive city water. And the sun comes out in the middle of July. And by the end of the day, it, it's withered. It's faded. Oh, the contrast. God is the dwelling place from generation to generation, even before the generations. But man is dust. When we get to the middle section here, when he's, as he comments on transient man, he says... Verse 7, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Right? So we are consumed and terrified by God's wrath. What he's getting at in this section is no one escapes death. Moses is commenting on the fact that even though the people of God are redeemed, sin has affected all creation. Right? So there is this wrath of God that's on humanity. There is the judgment of God that everyone experiences, and it is called death. He says, we're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. We have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins are in the light of your presence. And so in God's wrath, God sees all of our sin. He knows our deepest secrets they're brought into to light. All of us pass under this judgment. Verse 9, for all our days pass under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. And isn't that really how it does end? You know, some of you have been with a loved one when they've passed. And that is how it ends. It's a breath, and then it's over. And it's so quick. And it is about God's judgment. And he says the years of our life are 70 or maybe 80. But notice what he says, but their span is but toil and trouble. They are gone, and we fly away. Jacob said something like this. Um, so one of the patriarchs um, of Israel, he said something like this. I can't help but think that Moses was thinking about what Jacob said about his life. Now, he lived much longer than most of us will live, and he said all of his life was toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? 
very poetically and very beautifully, he's, he's telling us, everyone goes to meet their maker. And we ought to live our life in light of this very fact. Solomon, in his wisdom in Ecclesiastes, he says um, that it is better to go into the house of mourning than to in a great feast where there's laughter. Why? Because isn't it in those moments that we consider our frailty and our humanity? Isn't it in those moments that we consider these things? I I preached a a sermon um, at a funeral this week, and it's almost tangible, visible, that you can see people's brains operating when you're up there speaking and sharing the gospel at a funeral. They're counting their days. It's, it's, it's almost like this thickness in the air. We all get that sometime our time will be where we're in that casket up front. Oh, that's some morbid thing on Sunday morning. Come on, pastor, the sun's out. It's Michigan in winter. We got sunshine. Talk about something better. I think this is a really good thing because God thinks it's a really good thing. Right? This is actually, this psalm, what it does is it gives us this mature perspective on life. It's not a morbid perspective, as we're going to see. But what he's doing, what Moses is doing, is he's recounting the reality of life, that life is short and life is filled with trouble and it's a struggle, yet God is the dwelling place. the people of God. He's the place of comfort for all generations, even before the mountains were formed. God is there, which means he's going to be there tomorrow. And so that's why in this middle section, this wisdom part, verse um, verse, verse 7 through um, 11, and then verse 12, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Right? This is, teach us how to worship. Right? So, so what's happening is you have a, a psalm of worship. So this psalm is sung and recited in, 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 in worship. And the people of God understand that this is a prayer of Moses. That Moses is interceding on behalf of Israel. Why? Because Israel here at this point is in exile because of their disobedience. Israel here is disobedient. They're worshiping a a golden calf. Over and over again, through generation to generation, we have seen either men and women worshiping God or men and women going astray. And so Moses comes with this beautiful psalm of worship with this mature outlook on life, saying, look, at some point, you're going to stand before God and give an account. So teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. That we might know how to live and move and breathe and have our being in God now. That's what worship is about. That's what worship is for. This is clear, undistracted, a clear view of 
how life is. He is not mixing words. Life is short. Life is hard. But life is glorious and meant to be lived for God. So teach us a heart of wisdom. Let us not fool around and mess around and and waste days, but let us live our lives for God. And that's where he goes in this next section. Um, he, he, this co- it contrasts verses 3 through 6. Return to dust, O transient man. Now he's saying, return, O Lord, and give us joy. It's an interesting section. Return, O Lord, give a, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. And notice how this turns in verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Okay, now this is where your questions, you get real curious about the text, right? You get very curious about what's happening here. Because before, it's like, well, all our days are toil and struggle. And, well, wait a minute. Now he's saying, and this, this, is, this is where the, in the lament, he's asking God to fix what's broken. But he's asking it in a particular way. That we may rejoice all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and as many years as you have seen evil. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen? Give us as many days of joy. Come on, like, you, you got to read this and like really go, how in the... How is this going to happen? All right, I think I know who the oldest one is here. How old are you, Rose? Come on now. 29. Is it 95? Did I get it right? More. 96. 93, 93, okay, so here, 93, Rose is 93 and counting, anybody got more than 93, anyone, no, no one, probably, there's probably four people combined in here that don't have that many, that's wonderful, that's amazing, I want want you to understand, like, I want you to see this, how is Rose going to say to God, Give me 93 days, God, because that's what the psalmist says. Give me 93 days of joy and gladness. That, you see what the psalmist is saying? I want, I want that to dig in, right? So however old you are, you can admit to yourself your actual age in this moment silently. And then say, God, I want from you this many years of joy and gladness. But he is going, he's grabbing on to God. Do you see the forcefulness of this that's happening here in this psalm? I want you to get it and understand it. He's not saying, oh, you know, can I have this? If, if, you know, maybe. No, what he's saying is, Return, how long? Have pity on your service. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. God, you have promised this. Now I'm going to hold you to it, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power 
to their children. And notice the emphasis of generations. What is he asking here? What is he claiming? He's claiming resurrection. It's so beautiful in the text. Here Moses gets it. And he sees in the one who is promised that there will be as many days of joy as there have been affliction. Oh, we know in scriptures, and many more. Praise the Lord. Do you see where his hope is? Right, but it's, there's a balance and there's a tension in this that I find extremely beautiful. Because what he's asking in this, verse 12, is teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. It, this is not like, teach us, he's not saying teach us to number our days and then has this kind of escapism. Rather, he's, he's, he understands that we live our life in light of the fact that there is penalty and payment for sin. And there is one promised who will give life and life eternal. And he's saying, oh, it's not here yet. And I don't understand how it's going to happen. You see, Moses understood that. We can go to these two places in time, and Moses is coming down on the mountain, and he hears the shouts of pagan worship. Right? He was angry. God was angry. And the editor of the Psalms here is at that same place that Jerusalem is, is a barren wasteland. It's not, the temple is not functioning. And yet the promises are still true. And he trusts. And in his trust, he's saying, okay, teach us to number our days. Like what we want to do is we want to live in such a way that says, Eternity is now. It's at hand. Isn't that what Jesus said when he came? Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Eternity is here now. Live in it. Repent and believe the good news. It is in Christ Jesus that we get the wisdom of the ages in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we are to learn to live in it so that the days that we have, we might have a heart of wisdom. And that's where he ends this particular psalm. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And so He's, the first part of this psalm is the, about the everlasting God. But notice what the last part is. Let the favor of the Lord be, our God be upon us. And then he says twice, establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Oh, what, what an amazing call, an amazing challenge. Do you, do you see what's here? The everlasting God that is everlasting and has been the dwelling place for all generations, even before the world was created, is the one who establishes. When we have a heart of wisdom and we are working in the world, what is it at work? 
It is God at work. It is God at work. It's God who establishes the work of our hands. Unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor, labor in vain. But if the Lord is building the house, then what? Then God establishes the work of the laborer. So as we labor, when we labor in wisdom, when we understand and have this mature view of life, that life isn't about escaping problems. No, it's filled with toil and difficulty and trouble. But yet, God is the place that we rest in. God is the one that we trust in. His promises are faithful. That's when we get to work. And we get to work doing God's work God's way. And all we have to do is follow the manual. That's what the psalmist is saying. That's a mature view on life. And so Jesus said it as he summarized that psalm. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And you know what's wonderful is that we can say to Rose and all of us, is that when we believe the good news, God will establish the work of your hands for 70, 80, or 100 years. And God will pay back, right? The, the beauty of the resurrection is that it in Scripture is seen as a seed. And when you plant your life that is a life in Christ, and it goes into the ground in death. God brings forth that life in what? Just simply? A hundred years? No. A hundred and a thousand fold, even until eternity. You can trust God. So in whatever ways you're trusting yourself, or trusting a God that is not God. He calls us to repent and believe the good news. And so we as Christians, we need to learn the way of wisdom. How ought our lives to be ordered in a way that reflects God's glory? And so we pray. Teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Lord, we thank you for this psalm, for its encouragement to us. And as we respond, we respond in worship and in praise of our glorious Savior and King. We know that we will pass through the portal called death. And we know that you have been there already. And you have been there because of the glory of God. For it pleased you to place our sins upon yourself. To die and to be gloriously resurrected. So that we might know the power of resurrection 
um, even at this moment in time, that we would learn the wisdom of the ages in Christ. And that we would be able to then apply that wisdom moment by moment, even as we walk through today and tomorrow and the next day. That we would know how to respond to our neighbor, our spouse, our children, our family. That in life and in death, our, our comfort and in joy would be in Christ. And in that comfort, we would have assurance of life in its toil and suffering and eternal life in its unimaginable joy. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this morning and this opportunity that you have given us today one more time to worship you until that day that you call us face to face in worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.